0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
1: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single borough order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at borough.com slash acast. That's 15% off at borough.com slash acast.
2: This is The Guardian.
0: After weeks of speculation, Boris Johnson finally committed to a cabinet reshuffle. And what a reshuffle it was. I'm Jessica Elgott, Chief Political Correspondent at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. As I record, all of us in the lobby team are trying to desperately catch the latest twist in this reshuffle saga, so you might hear furious typing and colleagues on the phone in the background of this podcast. It has been one of the most chaotic days in Westminster, well, since the last one. The Prime Minister culled several names from his front bench, opting instead to promote some of his most ambitious and media-friendly ministers. After weeks of dangling over the heads of his cabinet, we finally know who is in and who is out. So will this new cabinet work in his favour? The Cabinet reshuffle came a day after another big government announcement.
1: And it's, it's just not sensible to rule out completely this kind of option now, when we must face the fact that it might still
0: make the difference between keeping businesses open at full capacity or not. The Covid winter plan. Or rather, two Covid winter plans. So will Johnson succeed in the rollout of Plan A or will he be forced to move to Plan B? And what happens if they both fail? That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, on a day that saw some ministers send out their farewell tweets before heading to the back benches, my colleague Aubrey Allegretti caught up with The Guardian's Deputy Political Editor Rowena Mason to try and figure out what just happened.
1: So, Rowena, a slightly busier day for the two of us than we necessarily expected. Let's uh, just quickly go through who's gone. Gavin Williamson has been sacked as Education Secretary. That was probably the least surprising move of the day.
2: Oh, yes. I don't think even Gavin Williamson himself thought he was going to be keeping his job. Um, He's consistently shown himself in recent months to be bottom of uh, the Conservative Home popularity charts among Uh, among Tory members Um, he's got very few defenders left really after the fiasco over exam results um, and uh, schools being shut during the the coronavirus pandemic Um, he's he's also incredibly gaffe prone one thing I would say about him is that he is a sort of Machiavellian figure which can be hard for the for the public to uh, to see really given that he's perhaps a, a figure of fun um, given his many gaffes but he um he has the potential um to be quite discontented and put out by this um, not just a, a sacking from the role of education secretary but the removal from the cabinet entirely and so Boris Johnson might have made an enemy on the back benches there um, and Gavin Williamson is not really an enemy you might want because he he knows a lot of secrets from his time as chief whip and he uh, he has a lot of contacts in the media as well so he could make life slightly difficult for the prime minister if he if he should so choose.
1: The other two losses from the Cabinet today have obviously been the two Roberts, Generic and Buckland, from the MHCLG and Justice Briefs. What do we know about the reasonings behind their sackings?
2: Now those are slightly more surprising. I think with uh, with Robert Buckland, there is a sense that he was just... A little bit dispensable. He's a fairly sort of affable chap. He's not going to cause uh, the Prime Minister any trouble from the back benches. And he's he's been a long time supporter of Johnson, but he was also a Remainer. um, And he's not really made any secret of that or tried to pretend that he now believes in Brexit, particularly. I'm um, to Robert Jenrick he's not particularly done anything stunning and uh, in his role as, as um, in the ministry of housing um and he has been responsible for uh, for a, a few sort of gaffes and um and messes including the planning reforms which has really annoyed the tory shires the idea that the government was going to let um allow more building um more building in uh, in green areas uh, that that's now been watered down if not dropped entirely
1: Now, outside the cabinet, Amanda Milling, another interesting departure. She's gone as party chair. Um, I actually bumped into her last week and uh, she did not seem to be expecting that kind of move. The former Culture Secretary, Oliver Dowden, has now moved into the role to replace her. I have to say Milling didn't have a terribly high opinion among some Tory MPs who viewed her as pretty ineffective. One texted me today saying they were opening the champagne when it was announced she was going. What did you make of her departure?
2: Um, I would say most people would say about Amanda Milling, Amanda who? I mean, she was completely anonymous. She had absolutely no profile, even among Conservative Party members. Um, The grassroots really didn't know anything about her and she sort of failed to make much of the job. Um, It's interesting what you say there, but that she wasn't personally expecting it because that might be something to do with the fact that she's considered an ally of Boris Johnson. She worked in his leadership campaign, not just the, the most recent one, but she's, she's been an ally of his back, back even as far back as 2016. So um, it, it's a leadership, it's, it's a reshuffle uh, that um, shows that Johnson has not been afraid to turn over some of his closest allies. Um, so it's not just Williamson, but Milling too, um, which, it, which is surprising given his, uh, his propensity to shy away from uh, annoying people that, he owes favours to.
1: Right, so we've rounded up the ones who have gone. Of course, there have been a couple of moves as well. Dominic Raab has sort of been debated and is no longer Foreign Secretary. He's now in charge of the Ministry of Justice instead, though it seems there's a sweetener there to avoid his blushes as is and to make it more palatable. Raab's obviously been made Deputy Prime Minister in addition to his new title, but the last person to officially hold that role was actually Nick Clegg. Do you get the sense that that was the only way that Raab would actually go willingly?
2: yes i expect so um we we've, we've talked about rob and the fact that he spent a long time in there uh, with boris johnson that's a sign that a minister is a little bit unhappy perhaps airing his grievances there's de- definitely known that he was um he was not pleased about being blamed for the mess of the evacuation from Afghanistan over the summer. Um, but it seems the Prime Minister was determined to move him and um, uh, and had held back this idea in reserve of, uh, of him becoming Deputy Prime Minister. It doesn't seem as though that comes with any particular uh, extra responsibilities apart from, of course, deputising for uh, Boris Johnson in his absence. And that's actually what rob has been doing all along um, with his title uh, of the First Secretary of State. He did it uh, once before when the Prime Minister was ill with coronavirus in the pandemic last year. Um, so it, it, it's it's not like there's any uh, particular... Um, it's not like it's that much of a sweetener for Dominic Raab, although to say your Deputy Prime Minister is, is a slight upgrade from saying a First Secretary of State.
1: And of course, reshuffles are a brutal game. One person's loss is another person's gain, especially if you're Liz Truss, who's going to be replacing Raab and becoming the first Conservative female Foreign Secretary. That will probably go down very well with the party faithful, won't it? She's seen as being sort of one of the top performers in the cabinet, at least in terms of popularity.
2: Yes, that's true. She's one of the ones who's coming top all the time in surveys about Conservative Party members. Um, they really like her um, her sort of pure free market views. Um, one perhaps interesting angle to it, though, is um, she is considered now quite a contender uh, for to be a future prime minister and you do slightly wonder whether um, she's got that role um, as a a sort of perhaps a way to get her out of the country a bit more something prime ministers often do if um, there's somebody in their cabinet that they that they they find a bit threatening on the on the domestic front they put them in the foreign secretary role it means they'll be out of the country a lot um, and not on the television screens all the time.
1: And there were a couple of other interesting moves. You've got Nadim Zahawi, who's taken over from Gavin Williamson. Michael Gove has replaced uh, Robert Jenrick. And Nadine Dorries has taken over from Alva Dowden in the culture brief. So what do we know about those moves? And is the sort of overall strategy of the reshuffle likely to go down quite well?
2: Well, Nadim Zahawi has been viewed as an effective minister in his role as vaccines minister. So this is a reward for him. He's seen as a... um, somebody who who sort of works with purpose in a department quite an effective organizer he's a former businessman so that the hope will be that he will he will try and get the education department in order after gavin williamsons um tenure and you've got michael Gove's the new housing secretary that's interesting because it shows that Boris Johnson still doesn't really trust him to, enough to be to elevate him to uh, to a great office of state. It's a, I would describe probably as a sideways move. I, I know people around him might try and pitch as a promotion um, from the Cabinet Office, but it's not particularly. I mean, it, it gives him more, it gives him a sort of departmental responsibility for housing, and he is seen as this kind of departmental problem solver, where he kind of goes in and he sorts out um, an area in Whitehall, and there's lots of policy meat to get his teeth into. But um, It's certainly not. uh, He's he's certainly not got a a huge job there. Nadine Dorries, yes, that's a slightly peculiar one. That she's got this great big elevation to the cabinet. I'm not sure. um, A few years ago, that you could have uh, guessed that she would be getting an enormous job. Um, Very famous back in uh, back in the David Cameron and George Osborne era for having described them as two posh boys who don't know the price of milk. And there's been a really long-term supporter of Boris Johnson. So that's perhaps an area where he, uh, um, her loyalty has been rewarded over time.
1: Yeah, so I wonder how long she'll be in there before we get the headlines. I'm a cabinet minister, get me out of here.
2: Yes, of course, she's famous for uh, for I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Um, and also for questioning um, the BBC as bias, left-wing bias, and thinking media's on the broadcaster are too left-wing. She's definitely someone who you would think might be tempted to play into the culture wars rather than um, to to dampen them down. So um, perhaps that's what uh, the Prime Minister wants in that role as somebody who's who's going to be fairly robust with the BBC.
1: And of course, we can't finish without talking about those who have just stayed in their place, off-forgotten, but we've still got Rishi Sunak as Chancellor, Priti as Home Secretary, Grant Shapps in Transport and Sajid Javid, only very recently into that job, obviously, as Health Secretary. Host of others also safe. Was it a case really of let's rock the boat, but actually not too much?
2: Yes, I think that's a very good way of describing it, Aubrey. Um It would have been absolutely colossal for the PM to have moved Rishi Sunick as Chancellor. He's very popular uh, with the Conservative Party and not unpopular with the public uh, because of his uh, oversight of the furlough scheme that's kept a lot of people in work. He seems to be safe for now, um, but uh, who knows what will happen in the future. And Priti Patel, as, as Home Secretary, she has long been mooted to somebody that might have to be moved, particularly um, since she was found to have um, broken ministerial code over allegations of bullying but it was thought that the, that uh, Boris Johnson might take the plunge and, and try and move her to another role. She was moved as a possible party chairman, but he obviously decided to keep her in place. And she's now um, one of two women holding great offices of state, meaning um, there's now that's now half of uh, great offices of state held held by um, by female cabinet ministers. And Grant shops in, shops in Transport, he's... Um, He'll be extremely happy with that. He's always liked the the, uh, the transport portfolio, and he's another early backer of Boris Johnson, so that's not particularly surprising. And Sadiq Javid, again, as you say, Aubrey, he was only put into that job relatively recently, so it was very unlikely that he'd been that he would be moved. So overall, it's it's a reshuffle that did some that cleared out some ministers who must have been expecting to lose their jobs, and a lot of other ones will be breathing a sigh of relief that uh, that their their roles have been saved for now.
1: And do you think the reshuffle is likely to reinvigorate a Conservative Party that's been slightly bruised by tax increases and reassert Boris Johnson's leadership? Because that has come slightly into question in recent weeks.
2: Well, perhaps uh, perhaps the, the changes at the top of the, of the um, chairmanship of the Conservative Party might be um, designed to try and sort that out because there has been quite a bit of mutterings of unhappiness among the grassroots. And Boris Johnson's fallen in popularity among them um he'll be wanting to try and reassert his um his true blue conservative credentials after they're questioned by his former employers at the telegraph which must have hurt him given how much he we know he listens to that newspaper in particular um so perhaps this is a, a reshuffle designed to um to to stress that um that he is still a true conservative and i can imagine that uh, that the new tory chairman will will be charged with making sure the members know that
1: Rowena, thanks so much for sticking around at the end of a mad day to talk to me.
0: No problem. Thank you. After the break, Raphael Bear brings us up to speed on the government's winter COVID plan. We'll be right back. Ready to pop the question? Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Jessica Elgott. Now, as we head into the winter, experts are warning that the NHS could soon become overwhelmed with COVID cases. So yesterday, the Prime Minister announced the government's COVID winter plan, or rather plans. Guardian columnist Raphael Baer has been analysing the details. Let's start with COVID, which it doesn't feel like we've we've talked a lot about in in recent weeks. Heading into the winter, where are we now versus where, you know, we, we would like to be?
3: Uh, well, well. The short answer to that is no one's entirely sure because you know where we are compared to where we've been you know, in this time last year, for example, uh, is is transformed by the existence of quite a lot of vaccinated people. What you know, what the prime minister calls this wall of immunity. So, uh, although uh, you've got uh, the hospitalizations uh, at a rate high enough that if people weren't vaccinated, you'd, you'd Be going back into lockdown, I mean, that's sort of where the the graph looks like uh, compared to this time last year. Uh, But of course, what we've also got is a pretty steady and flat infections rate, uh, which suggests that the pandemic, although it's not going away, nor is it running out of control. Uh, And so that's why we have this slightly awkward situation where you've come out of a summer where people have broadly been given the impression that essentially uh, it's all over by the shouting and you can actually carry on shouting as much as you like. Uh, and that was the summer. And that's very different from the autumn and winter. People are going back indoors. People are going back to work. Uh, and we're about to really stress test that wall of immunity. Uh, and that's why I think in, in the press conference yesterday, uh, certainly I was discerning a fair amount of, of anxiety uh, on the face of Chris Whitty. All of
1: medicine. There is almost no area of medicine which is risk free. So what you're always trying to do is balance risk against benefit. And that's true in this decision, as all other ones.
0: I suppose what is the kind of tricky thing and that a lot of people can't get their heads around, it was, you know, when we're going to the lockdown this time, well, a bit a few months later last year, we, we kind of had the hope and promise of a vaccine. We had an end date and now we've we've got a vaccine and most people have been vaccinated. The vast majority of the country, or at least the adult population, has been vaccinated. And yet there still seems to be a risk. People still seem to be getting infected, even if they've been vaccinated. Hopefully that means that they you know, get a much, much milder version. And then the question starts to appear, doesn't it? That, okay, well, if we're getting lots of infections in vaccinated people, but what they're getting is a kind of mild illness, do we just... Allow that to happen? Do we just allow those infection rates to 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 keep going up? And what's and what's the point where we just have to say, look, that is, it's just going to become one of those those sort of mild winter, winter illnesses, and you get some some protection of a of a from from the vaccine. It's it's just a tricky balance, isn't it?
3: Well, there are lots of interlocking issues here. So the first thing to say, I think, uh, about that is. A lot of people are vaccinated and, you know, well, over two thirds now or over two thirds of adults are double jabbed. And that's great. And they have, uh, as you say, a a decent amount of protection, way more obviously than if they weren't vaccinated. But that still leaves quite a lot of people who aren't vaccinated and and a small proportion of a very, very large number of people, which is the adult population of the UK, is still an awful lot of people who can get very, very ill. You know, on top of that, there's this question of whether, of how long the immunity you get from the vaccination lasts. Uh, Some questions have been raised about that. There's so much uncertainty as ever with this thing. We don't really know. And the test is not necessarily, you know, can we live with a nasty illness out there, sort of endemic but not pandemic um, in the society? Probably, yes, people can adapt. Um, Politically, where it becomes really salient actually is can the NHS function normally uh, and in a way that people don't feel you know, the, the services breaking down doesn't become politically difficult for the government when you've got this nasty illness circulating at quite a high level, even if it's stable, and then also you get a flu, a seasonal flu on top of that. So that, I think, is what will give the government reason to change gear in terms of uh, actual social restrictions on the disease.
0: And all of this brings us to the winter plan that was announced by Boris Johnson. And plan A is essentially just keep doing what we're doing, but with these added vaccines, with the booster programme for over 50s and with the vaccination of 12 to 15 year olds. I mean, There are sort of other things, part of it, you know, carry on testing, etc. But um, it's essentially just double down on what we're doing already.
3: And how long can that hold, do you think? Uh, well, first of all, politically, once you say you've got a plan B, then obviously journalists look at plan B and start treating it as if it's, as if it's plan A, <laughs> because that's the more right. interesting thing. What if it doesn't work? What if plan, you know, what if plan A falls apart? Um, ultimately, the, the test will be whether the infection rate uh, starts to go up, and therefore, and the hospitalisation rate tracks that, as inevitably it does. Although how steeply depends uh, on, on the immunity of the population and the vaccination.
0: The thing that strikes me about Plan B, which is, you know, the return of mask wearing, the return of some working from home, and then also vaccine passports, which, you know, odds are they they may not ever be able to have the, 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 the strength in the Tory party to introduce those, is that... Lots of people are doing those things already. A lot of people are still doing hybrid working from home. A lot of people are still wearing masks when they go on public transport in, and in retail. So it begs the question is plan B going to, if things are really bad, is plan B going to be enough? Because it's sort of what a lot of people are doing already.
3: It's what a lot of people are doing in places where lots of people are doing it. If you see what I mean, and this becomes a question of, of of sort of social norms versus actual rules and regulations. And what you see, I think, is a sort of a degrading of of observation of those rules when they're not rules anymore. Uh, and, and that's where you have this problem that ultimately, you know, one of the sort of demographic segments where adherence, sort of voluntary adherence to social distancing, mask wearing and the rest of it is particularly weak is that demographic group, which is the Conservative Party. Uh, And you see, you know, in the chamber of the House of Commons around the cabinet table, uh, in a sort of close quarters, indoor poorly ventilated environment full of lots of people uh, of a particular age who should be extra wary of COVID, not wearing masks. And that once that culture has taken hold in the Conservative Party, it becomes very difficult to get back to uh, a, just a sort of even-tempered, uh, rationalistic evaluation of what the science says at any given moment and what the best public health policy would be. That's going to be more of a problem, I think, for the Prime Minister, uh, it moving, you know, as I say, changing gears from Plan A to Plan B or having a Plan C uh, than anything else I would have thought, that that culture in the Conservative Party.
0: And I suppose that brings us nicely on to talking about about vaccine passports, the 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 idea that we'll never die, uh, even when cabinet ministers say it's dead, it's never dead. Um, this idea that uh, documents would be necessary for 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 fully vaccinated people to get into nightclubs. If you're not fully vaccinated, I you know tests don't cut it. It's all about vaccinations and. Boris Johnson seems to really flip-flop about whether he's in favour of the of these things so much. Uh, I, I think there's still a, it's still a bit up in the air whether there actually need to be any kind of parliamentary
3: vote on it. But it's something that the Tory backbenchers feel extremely strongly about, don't they? My sense, and this is something that I think could really come back to haunt him, is that over the summer, he allowed himself and people in number 10 allowed themselves to... Think that they would got COVID done the way they think they would got Brexit done. And Brexit wasn't done, by the way, and neither is the pandemic. Uh, and that slightly toad of toad hall, impatient, what's the next thing? What's my new fad uh, aspect of the Prime Minister's character uh, means that he's vulnerable to reaching you know, November, things getting quite difficult with the pandemic, and people turning around and saying, you really squandered the summer, didn't you? I mean, it was, things were looking good over the summer. You know, you, you, all you needed to do was just go a bit slower, keep people working from home a bit more, maybe a bit more masks, maybe introduce the vaccine passport, and we wouldn't be back in lockdown if that's where we end up. That, I think, is, a, is, is the, the danger. It's that we've got a, a character in number 10, Boris Johnson, who's just bored with this and wants to move on, and the virus isn't ready to move on.
0: Is there, do you think, I mean, there must be a plan C do they know what they're going to do if plan B
3: doesn't work? If the question is, can we rely on Boris Johnson's cabinet to have done uh, all the necessary preparation and with a high degree of competence war game the various scenarios uh, so that the UK is well insulated against the hazards of a pandemic resurgence, I'd say the precedent suggests no.
0: <laughs> what should what should Plan I mean, can, can you avoid you know if plan b doesn't work are there are there ways to avoid a full lockdown clearly there is going to it's going to take you know he's going to have to be dragged by wild horses to close schools again to close businesses again it feels like that is something that this prime minister just is not willing to do unless we get some terrible new variant that 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 starts causing uh, hundreds and hundreds of deaths a day it's um, the
3: nhs if the noises sort of filter up through the Department of Health uh, and reach Sajid Javid's desk, you know, the, all the the lights on his dashboard are flashing red and people are saying, you are going to have a political crisis out of all proportion uh, to anything we've had so far because of what's happening on, on wards. Uh, and then he then goes to the prime minister and says, we can't have any more people going into hospital. We need people to stay at home again. Then that's what will happen. But that will be the conduit, I think. Um Boris Johnson doesn't want to fight an election in the scenario where the NHS is on its knees and people are saying same old Tories look they destroyed the health service and it's Boris Johnson's fault you know so he's shoveling money into it uh, and because it's politically enormously sensitive and that will be exactly the same dynamic that decides whether or not we end up having to stay at home a bit longer over Christmas again
0: how how does labor play all this raf um, it's it's a difficult line to tread isn't it because Keir Starmer doesn't really want to be Captain Doom, uh, you know, insisting the UK returns into another lockdown. That's not a recipe for popularity. Although, you know, we do, we often see the public in polling being more cautious than the, the politicians. But it is a tricky balance, isn't it? It's always a tricky balance for him to start calling for more restrictions.
3: It's been an absolute nightmare for Labour just from the very beginning. I mean, at the start of the pandemic, it's a national emergency. Uh, People wanted to pull together and to be attacking the government, uh, it sort of came across as if you were sort of willing the government to fail in its battle against COVID. And that's sort of taking the side of the virus. So that wasn't something Keir Starmer could do. That moment has passed. It passed with the sort of Barnard Castle and Cummings unravelling. And I think people have got a sense that you're allowed to have politics around the pandemic. But what an opposition position would actually be uh, has not, Become at all clear. Look, I think part of the problem that Keir Starmer has developed over the course of the pandemic is his brand is now a little bit the, the guy who stands on the sidelines tutting and saying, Oh, well, you wouldn't want to do it like that. Or, or he's like the supply teacher who who sort of leans over the prime minister's homework saying, Oh, yes, well, you should have tried harder, you could have done this better. You know, who Keir Starmer is. Uh, yes, which is something he really needs to establish in the eyes of the voters is not going to be is a problem for him at the moment, and it's not one that has a solution uh, in in banging on about the pandemic and and criticising the government for being too slow on, on these restrictions, uh, and and that is just a political problem for Labour.
0: And finally, there was uh, we had a quite an amusing uh, moment at the press conference and following it when Professor Chris Whitty and Sir Patrick Grants were were asked to respond to questions and and, and to respond to this viral tweet from Nicki Minaj about her poor cousin's friend who uh, had some serious problems apparently with his anatomy after getting the vaccine uh, and he probably wasn't expecting it to be scrutinised by the UK's chief medical officer. How much of a problem is that kind of viral tweets from celebrities or is it, to be honest,
3: just quite funny? Oh, no, I think it's a huge problem. And and you saw from Chris Whitty's response that, you know, he he finds it, distressing. I mean, I I couldn't tell whether he'd actually heard of Nicki Minaj, actually. (laughs) He did a good job of sort of responding to the general problem of misinformation. Uh, Thank you, Prime Minister. Um, uh, So
1: there are a number of myths that fly around with varying, some of which are just clearly ridiculous, and some of which are clearly designed just to scare. That happens to be one of them. Uh, That is untrue. Uh, My own strong suggestion, if I may, to uh, uh, media
3: present and not present
1: is repeating them in public actually just gives them credence, which they don't need.
3: And as we've gone through the summer where there is enough immunity that people can sort of behave more or less as they were before without the sky falling in, I think we are in a particularly dangerous moment now with this, where you could easily look around and think, what was the fuss? What was this all about to begin with? Look, you know, there's no, it's all been a bit of a scam or it's all been a bit overblown. Uh, and I know that the sort of health professionals and people in government are very worried about that, that as it were, the, the the liberation that science has afforded us could end up being weaponized against the science.
0: Never a dull week in Westminster. Raphael Baer, thanks ever so much for joining me.
3: It's a pleasure, as ever.
0: And that's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra to hear Jonathan Friedland's conversation with none other than the former Secretary of State and presidential candidate, Hillary Clinton. But for now I want to thank our guests, Aubrey Gretti, Rowena Mason and Raphael Baer. The producers were Hattie Moyer and Danielle Stevens. I'm Jessica Elgott. Do look after yourselves, and thanks for listening.
2: This is The Guardian.